of ammunition crates and announced through a megaphone that an armistice had just been signed and the war was over. Many cheered, but a portion of the young recruits seemed disappointed that they wouldn't get to shoot at anybody. The weapons hanging on them, the ammunition stacked around in wooden crates, the cannons still being unloaded by the puffing dock cranes were suddenly redundant. Sam wondered what he would tell his friends back home of his war experience. The most valuable trophies of war were the stories, and this one was good only for a derisive laugh. Robichaud poked him in the back with the tip of his bayonet scabbard. This like that time you tried working at Stein's? What? Stein, the shoe man. Oh, I guess so. He had tried for two weeks to get a job at Stein's Shoe Emporium on Canal Street. But the morning after the old man had finally decided to take him on, Sam showed up for work only to find a wreath on the door and a tight note announcing the death of Solomon Stein and the permanent closure of his shop. He stood in his ranks for an hour, feeling awkward and unnecessary, while the officers tried to figure what to do with all these soldiers and their tons of gear. Sam's long suit was patience, or at least an ability to wait for something good to happen. So he stood there, watching the civilians cheer as the men around him grumbled that they might have to file onto the ship for a lurching voyage back to New Orleans. It was cold, and he was hungry. After a long while, Boys pushing carts of food came up and fed each man a miniature loaf of hard bread with a slice of cheese hanging out like a pale tongue. Then they were marched five miles to the edge of the city, where they pitched camp in a bald field that, judging by the stumps and posturing bronze statues, must once have been a landscaped park. An icy breeze flowed down from a boulevard feeding into the camp, and Sam fastened the top button on his tunic and closed his coat. He had never felt a wind that cold in his life. That night, he was sure he would freeze to death. Robichaud, his tentmate, lay on his cot talking non-stop. Hey, Simino, I'm thinking of a warm fire, me. Hot potatoes in each pocket. How about you? I'm thinking about those recruiting posters. They made joining up look like a good idea, he said glumly. I like the one with the Hun molesting them Belgian women. Sam raised his head from his cot and looked at him. You liked it? I mean, it made me mad. Made me want to come over and help him out. You wanted to make them Belgian women grateful, huh? You bet. Sam covered his head. Sometimes I think about the music. I was sales clerk at Grunewald's when I joined up, and we got in all this sheet music full of sunshine, like over there, somewhere in France's daddy. Keep your head down, Fitzy boy. Robbie Shows sniffed. You didn't think you'd need to keep your head down between your legs to keep your ears from freezing off? So far... Sam said dreamily, It's not a happy song.
At home, the war had seemed a colorful musical production, a gay foxtrot in the key of C. But the voyage on the Alex Denkman changed all that. The Denkman was a round-bottom, coal-burning, nausea machine, its hull so fouled with giant streamers of rust that the government decided painting a camouflage pattern on it was unnecessary. A boy who'd grown up in Sam's hometown had died en route of a burst appendix and was buried at sea after a perfunctory prayer. Sam and several other Louisiana men had stood in snow flurries on the fantail and watched the shrouded figure bob in the ship's rolling wake, refusing to sink, as though the corpse itself didn't feel right about the lead-cold sea and was trying to drift back toward the warm soil of a Louisiana graveyard.